Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the sunny shores of Cannes. Over the course of the 2022 festival, as news of standing ovations and walkouts, raves and pans, spit takes and hot takes flood the feed, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on all the cinematic goings on at the Crossette with dispatches, interviews and podcasts. So make sure to subscribe to both the Film Comment letter and podcast and keep tuning in every day for more. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Film Comment podcast from Cannes. We are moving on and on, soldiering on, I should say. And I'm here with two critics that you've heard on the podcast before, but we are finally getting together in person, which is very exciting. They're my go-to festival and Cannes experts. We have Jonathan. Hello. Jonathan Romney. <laughs> You did this last what time. Did you, what did you want? What did you want to know from me exactly? I'm Jonathan Romney, and I'm yeah. and I'm here, and I'm still after ten or whatever days, relatively happy to be here. That's good to hear because it's yeah, it's good to start with some positivity, and and Jessica Kiang, uh, I am also here. I think just about very glad to be here. I wanted to start with a movie that you both woke up very early to see today. A big, big title at this year's Cannes, Elvis. Tell us uh-huh. all about Elvis. <laughs> well, I loved it. I have to say, if I can use a very old-fashioned word about Baz Luhrmann, um, he's terribly vulgar. Um, and he sort of drapes everything in glittering diamante that's his style mm. but uh, and I've hated some of his films in the past I really thought this was a blast I mean it's very strange because basically it's the Elvis story but told as the citizen cane of Colonel Tom Parker and oh. it's basically Tom Hanks as Colonel Parker this very dubious and and manipulative and mysterious but ultimately horrifying figure who talks about how he created Elvis or rather you know how he he made Elvis into you know the world's greatest meal mm. ticket um Hanks isn't terribly impressive because he he seems so it's more to be of a mank than a citizen Kane maybe kind of a yeah. Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks yeah <laughs> Hanks Manx um he actually seems to be playing the penguin throughout or a kind of Dutch version of the penguin mm. he's got the, the, the makeup is really peculiar um I actually I thought he looked like a kind of uh papier mache effigy of Rupert Murdoch some oh time. my god but but never mind him the whole point is uh this uh young actor um Austin Butler mm. who is you know the world's greatest Elvis impersonator you know I mean we've seen a few Elvis in person you know there are a whole you know Vegas conventions of Elvis impersonators yeah. and he walks in and he wins hands down I mean he's incredible he's really really good he does uh what in the film they call the wiggle I mean my god he can move his hips and it does actually really bring out the idea that Elvis sort of unleashed this uh uncontrollable sex bomb on America I mean it's very you know it's funny in that respect um there is not much uh social insight um there are some really kind of creaky attempts to relate elvis's career to you know the traumatic political assassinations of the 60s mm. um 
in terms of his relationship with his wife, Priscilla, it's just not there at all. But as a kind of mixture of, you know, jukebox musical and I don't know what crazed extravaganza. I mean, there's just so much to enjoy. It's also really good in terms of, you know, it, it kind of goes out of its way to to say, well, you know, remember Elvis took everything from black music and mm. black culture. It does, okay. Yeah, and yeah. then it sort of blows it by saying, oh, and just to prove it, you know, we're going to mix in a few raps in these kind of lermanized versions of the hits. Mm. Um, which I think is a really bad idea um, because the songs in their pure form just don't need, you know, they come across so well. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Jessica, I, I hear you disagree. I, I deeply disagree. Uh. And it's funny that you bring up the the, the, the film Mank because I, I think the word Mank uh, in its English usage, okay. which means crap, terrible, awful, garish, <laughs> revolting. Um, English is, like is, as, yeah. in, as in uh, from where you both hail? No, I, well, I'm not English. I'm Irish. Oh, How, dare Irish. How, How dare you? How dare I? I know. Be very careful. <laughs> oh, I have committed a grave no, faux pas. Um, Apologies. Uh, yes, this uh, Elvis was uh, absolutely, absolutely not for me and um, although uh, uh, I think Jonathan has done a very nice job of circumventing the Tom Hanks issue I don't think you can circumvent the Tom Hanks issue in this he is awful he is legitimately awful <laughs> his makeup is awful his accent I have no idea it's discovered later on that that, that uh, he was actually Dutch but I, that, that is not a Dutch accent sometimes it's, it sounds like he's trying to do an Irish accent sometimes he has this very hard way of, of pronouncing his T's and, and D's um, and in this weird um, uh, sort of prosthetic uh, neck thing that he has to wear throughout the whole thing, and I just uh, also the framing of 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 it as as you're saying actually uh, as a sort of a Citizen Kane reminisce back over his over his life and how Elvis intersected with that life. Um, it, it completely does not work for me at all because it, the very beginning part is like he's he's doing again in his terrible accent that I can't even try to mimic because I don't know what accent it was, um, saying you know you know people always cast me as the villain in Ellen's in in Elvis's story but I was the one who made him and and then every single every single time you see him uh, in Baz Luhrmann's imagination he is cast as the villain he's literally like practically you know twiddling his mustaches and and uh, and you know uh, lurking behind curtains at times and, mm. and peeping around corners and and this sort of like seedy um uh, really regressive presence that is entirely holding Elvis back so I mean and that's that's even even that wouldn't be a problem necessarily so much if the actual filmmaking itself was something that I could bear but this this I mean I'm I'm not a, a Luhrmann fan anyway this particular film it genuinely brought me out in hives from about the first five minutes. You actually left the building. Yeah. Yes. No. I really wanted to yeah. leave the building. Um, um, and uh, uh, and I will say, like my my main issue with the, the way that he makes the film is that fine if you're going to do this very garish, very over the top thing, even like Great Great Gatsby or something like that, which I also is a terrible film. But um, but I'm, I will in, out myself here as a Great Gatsby, Gatsby sympathizer, okay. not a fan, right. okay. but a sympathizer. Yes. But I mean. In a way that, that 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 film felt to me at least more like a film. This mm. just feels to me like a montage that goes on for two hours and forty minutes. People, two hours forty <laughs> minutes, and it's it just never stops and slows down to start start telling its story. It's just constantly told in this um, absolutely overbearing, over like overly garish, overly embellished yeah. um, uh, montage. There are also oh, sorry, go ahead. well, there are kind of key things that he misses, which he's chosen not to get involved in, and the final year. Um, he kind of steps back, you know, 
to his credit, I suppose he doesn't want he decided not to wallow in the squalor, but he does step away from it rather mm. too cautiously. And also, you know, everyone really wants to know about his dealings with uh, J. Edgar Hoover when he decided, you know, he wanted to sign up as a kind of secret anti-drugs agent for the FBI. You know, we don't get any of it. It's a jukebox musical mm. crossed with Douglas Sirk melodrama. Mm. It it's it look, it's a total folly. I think ultimately, you know, he's a remarkably tasteless filmmaker. But it what can I say? For the first time, uh well, certainly since Romeo and Juliet, you know, this this won me over. I really enjoyed it. Mm. I mean and I will I will I, I will the... agree that uh, that Austin Butler it does make a very good Elvis okay. in those pieces and it and it that almost that almost frustrated me more. So the scenes where we're with him for a long time and it sort of settles down for a very brief moment and tells a little bit of the story or gives us a, like an extended part of the performance. They do do Suspicious Minds in Vegas the, in the white suit, which is, you know, the, one of the classic all time Elvis performances. Um, and when when it settles down into that and you start, you know, really admiring what Austin Butler is doing and what he's bringing to it, then in those moments, it's great. But actually, because it's so chopped up and it's like a box full of confetti and glitter mm. that is just then, you know, it is these performances that are then chopped up into these tiny pieces and then flung at your face. Um, I, you just don't get enough time to be able to sit with any of those performances for mm. them to really resonate, I felt. I was going to ask about the music performances, so mm. you anticipated my question. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, this is for the hardcore Elvis fans. No, I no, think no. other <laughs> people will want to see it. No, and this I think, is the thing. Know, it's it's going to make a billion. Yeah. It's okay, going okay, okay. to it's yeah. make Elvis something of a thing again because his star has faded. I think a lot of people have forgotten who he was and why he was important. And actually, when you see these mm. performances, you just realize, you know, quite apart from the icon... Uh, the word I absolutely hate, but quite apart from the icon, it reminds you that you know he was he was incendiary, a fantastic mm. performer, even in you know and, and even perhaps especially in the much disparaged uh, Vegas, Vegas years. years. Yeah. Okay, so that's Elvis. I will just catch it when it comes stateside in like probably like six days or something. Mm -hmm. But there is a very different film that. I saw last night another uh, big anticipated title, Claire Denis' Stars at Noon. Um, so when I walked out of the theater and the 10-minute walk to my apartment, in that 10-minute walk, I heard such wildly varying reactions about this film. I heard everything from, this is the worst film I've seen at this festival. This is the worst film I've ever seen at Cannes. This is one of the better movies of the festival. This is, you know, all of the, oh, uh, it's so strange and wonderful, like everything. And I just said, I reserve comment. I need to sleep on it. It is truly such a weird, muddled, abstract film. So... I, I'm curious to know what you guys thought. I will again reserve comment until I've heard you mm. both. It's a strange film. I mean, yeah. I always have this problem with her. I never quite know what I'm going to think about her films, you know, until they've seeped in a bit. Mm. And some of her films here have gone down really badly. Everyone seemed to hate Bastards, which I actually liked straight away, but haven't thought about a great deal since. I remember seeing 35 shots of rum and thinking, oh, that's a bit low-key for her, and it didn't really... Mm. And actually, you know, with time, it's, it's emerged as one of her very best. Yeah. I think she's kind of come off the rails here. Uh, it's a very odd thing. So it's a largely English-language adaptation of a 1986 novel by Dennis Johnson, great right. underrated writer, set in Nicaragua. He, where he set it like two, uh, two years later. Denise's film is set now, 
during COVID, yeah. still apparently in Nicaragua. Um, There's some kind of, I wondered if there was something going on in the vein of transit, the Christian Petzold transit, but it's not there enough. You yeah, know? In if, terms if it is there. Playing with the times. Yeah, frame, but yeah. It, I don't know if it's intentional enough or it's just sort of loosely mixing, uh, you know, the time periods yeah. because. I couldn't quite locate the politics historically. Is no, it, and it, I don't right? know if it makes sense in terms yeah. of contemporary. I think you'd have to have a real expert in Central American politics to tell you whether it made any sense at yeah. all. But basically, it's a kind of torrid, sweaty romance between Margaret Qualley, who is apparently a journalist, but appears to be the only journalist present in Nicaragua but she's and also, doesn't but, write but she's a al- word. And she's also very clearly pointed out to me that, that she hasn't written anything in ages and, and she's kind of more like getting around by sleeping with people. Yeah, yeah. she's um, kind so of a yeah. sex... She is... Either she's come and then become a sex worker or that's how she's making money because I mean, she can't get assignments. Yeah. It's unclear. Yeah. And then she has a romance with, uh, you know, initially for 50 bucks a go, but she has a romance with Joe Alwyn, who is basically a kind of, you know, model in a white suit Jesus, and sort of harmless. hunky and a little sweaty. But he's just not there Ugh, at I, all. Okay, I, I, I'm... I entirely disagree with both of you. I love this Jesus. film. Love this film. Um, I, I do think that like Joe Alwyn, I think it would have been much more interesting had Robert Pattinson stayed in that I role. Just could, I, I kept thinking, oh my God, if it was just Robert Pattinson, the high life Robert Pattinson, mm. this brooding, self-loathing, mysterious guy. You know, I, I don't hate the film. I still feel very mm. uncertain about mm. it. And that's why I'm being hesitant because I'm going to think about it for a few more days, I think. And Robert but, Pattinson could have absolutely worn, you know, the slightly sweaty white suit in the perfect Graham Greene style. Yeah. You know, and it would have, <laughs> yeah. It would have he sense. would have been disgusting in the in the perfectly sexy way. I mean, uh, the I, one thing I feel certain about is Joe Alwyn is not it. <laughs> Just he... It's just something is missing. Like in, with Claire Denis, you look forward to the actors, what she brings out of them physically, emotionally. And it just feels like he's putting on this facade of mysteriousness, like he's trying too hard to be in a Claire Denis movie. His voice is a little lower than I've seen it in other movies. You know, his scruff seems very put on. Just there's something missing. He's so plain to me. Okay, well, there's, so I can I'll be able to justify all of these things. All right, all um, right. uh, firstly, like w- when you're talking about the politics and the politics not being there. Now I haven't read the novel, so I can't speak directly to it. I read about forty pages. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I actually think it, it feels to me like a very deliberate back like uh, recessive you know treatment of of whatever politics in that area, so that she can foreground these romantic elements, and specifically actually so that she can foreground the character that Margaret Qualley plays, and. So even when you're saying that that Joe Alwyn is is kind of bland or whatever it is uh, by comparison, I think it's actually by comparison because this is her film. This is Ma- Margaret Qualley's film, and I think she's extraordinary in it. I found her absolutely riveting in every so scene, did I. Yeah, and she's, she's really. really and it's a really. Bold. It's a but it's a. I think it's such an interesting character because she is this kind of she, she is both naive and then tries to affect this sort of cynicism. She has quite hard boiled dialogue bits. There's a lovely moment where which is obviously improvised where she just sings rum and shampoo when she's drunk and there's lots of scenes of her being drunk I mean you mentioned 35 shots of rum there are more than 35 shots of rum taken in this film yes um, and so she's like mostly drunk it's this incredibly and and I think the thing that always gets me about Claire Denis is that she's she's one of cinema's great sensualists she she makes these incredibly sensory 
films and the, the, the actual feeling of sweat dripping off things and of the tropics and of, and of kind of that, uh, that the, the torridness that is partly romantic but is also just partly atmospheric really comes across to, to came across to me in this film. And really, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to make a claim for it being some like massive piece of art that has a huge amount to say about the world. Um, but I was also enjoying that it wasn't even really trying to do that. It was actually just trying to be a kind of steamy throwback thriller in, in, the, in the style that we don't normally get anymore. Mm. Um, and uh, like, uh, my, so my last thing is that it, the thing, the film that it most reminded me of um, is a not very good film, but which I inexplicably adore, which is The Year of Living Dangerously. Mm. And I've seen that with Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver. So uh, that film has exactly that same sort of textural thing. And I think partly because this one reminded me of that so much. And I was just so entertained by the film and I was really brought along with it. it it's a long film. It did not feel over long to me. I was just so enjoying, especially being with Margaret Qualley in that situation. And actually, one, one, one last, very last thing. Um, when you were talking about the, the, it's updating to sort of the COVID era. Um, Claire Denis' previous film, which was Both Sides of the Blade, which was in Berlin this year, so she's had a very prolific moment. Um, uh, I did not like very much. Um, oh, and I, I loved I, that. I've, well, we've yeah, argued about yeah, we've it. Argued, we've exactly, we've already argued about that. <laughs> but I, 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 one of the things that I did admire about that film was her, of all people, it seems strange to me that Claire Denis should be the one who is able to incorporate elements of this weird moment with masks and whatever it is without making them the subject of her film. Mm. And I thought she did this really elegantly here as well. There are masks, there are things, but they're all also in this other situation, one scene actually takes place in a in a makeshift COVID uh, testing and. station. Um, so obviously the, those things are not from the novel, and and yet for me they worked really well. A, a makeshift COVID center is actually seems like a, a perfect place for a, a very seedy CIA agent played by Benny Safdie to approach. But but one thing that really troubled me here was that, and it seems uncharacteristic of Claire Denis, but she seemed to have almost zero regard for the. Central, Central American characters. There's a very good brief performance by um, Monica Bartholomew, who plays uh, a hotel owner or motel owner. But apart from that, you know, all the uh, Latinx characters are, um, you know, disposable. You know, people get shot. There's a ridiculous moment in it where suddenly, you know, uh, some soldiers uh, open gunfire and they kind of... Uh, you know, uh, Margaret and uh, Joe kind of uh, pop their heads out of the bushes and sort of shrug in a kind of uh, insouciant way. And no, then... they they deliberately don't shoot the white people. This is this is yeah, my I know, but, but they're no. not. No, but the point is they are not affected by it at all. Like they see the but slaughter this, this is... and it doesn't affect them but... at all. And that struck me as absolutely implausible because I don't. They couldn't see it coming. See, I no. I didn't. It didn't strike me as implausible mm. because um, I do think that they are meant to be self-involved and. They, you know, they're meant to be bad Americans, bad English people. But, you know, Jessica, what you said, like, that you liked that the political context was backgrounded mm. and instead it was the steamy, yeah. torrid romance. So there's two problems I have with that. Mm. First of all, I didn't think it was torrid enough other than in terms of the atmosphere because I couldn't feel any chemistry between them. Mm. I... I didn't actually find the romance believable at all. And a part of me is wondering, is that intentional? Because yeah. it is kind of a fake romance. Mm. You know, there is there is some there is some machinations yeah. underneath. 
But that is the thing that never fails in a Claire Denis film. You're yeah. always drawn into the passion. Yeah. So that was missing. And okay. then the backgrounding did bother me because, like I said, they are meant to be bad Americans. I mean, the Margaret Qualley character, well, I'm afraid I wasn't sold on her performance because I think it was very strongly affected and not embodied enough for me. But I think she is an affected person. I think this is part of part of what I'm trying to get at here. Right. Is, and actually also with the background in the politics, it's like it, this this has less become about the specifics of what of where they are and you know the the, the people that they're so it, it is to me an abstraction she's she's using this storyline as an abstraction of white uh, white westerners in places that they don't belong and the story is actually of those white westerners in a place that they don't belong so the place that they don't belong could almost be several of in many mm. other places and obviously I think we've seen that scenario been... so many times exactly. before and you know Graham Greene built, built an entire career in it and and you know Dennis Johnson does it extremely well in in some of his other novels I haven't read this one but I just didn't feel that she had anything new to bring to it and and the Margaret Qualley character is saying some nasty things at some points you know about you know saying uh, the US tanks are going to come and crush you all and I understand that she's meant to be this sort of desperate character she's caught in a corner you know and she's being used by multiple people she can't escape at the same time she's sort of an imperialist tourist so it's complex, mm. uh, and I'm I'm untangling those threads still. Yeah. The but film I'm, feels very touristic itself. That's the problem for me. But I, yeah, and I but I'm not sure that that I understand why we are following this character, and I'm not sure that there is enough framework to understand. You know, these characters are very unlikable and probably harmful in this environment, right? They're unlikable, self-absorbed, harmful. And for me, the idea that we it's enough to just focus on that and let everything else play in the background, it just doesn't seem right. You know, I need I need something to to make I, I don't want to say make their self-absorption more obvious, but something for their self-absorption to play out against in a way it's too easy to lose yourself in the torridness or you know in the like these two horrible people who are just you know, circling each other like um you know animals mm. but like but then why make why make that movie in yeah. such a politically fraught and complex well she setting? loved the book that's the thing apparently she loved the book and she read all of dennis johnson and she thought i've got to do this but i couldn't really see that it brought her anything and and you know as for the sex scenes actually someone uh my colleague david jenkins tweeted that you know is claire Denis making a zalman king film and i think he's not far off i think you know any screen sex can be steamy in a situation where the air conditioning's not working <laughs> yeah as in this film it, you've got to have more than that yeah. Mm. No, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I really do just disagree. Like, I'm just 180 degrees away from <laughs> most of these things that you're saying because yeah. I, I, and I really think that Margaret Qualley is, is, is superb in it. I was really riveted by her. And I actually think that her, her character is the reason that I like the film so much. I liked following her character. Even when you say that she's unlikable, yes, she is unlikable, but I also like, I like films about unlikable women. And I, I especially like this really peculiar character that she plays. And I think she plays it incredibly embodiedly. Um, incredible. Uh, and, you know, it's it, right down to like to ev 
every little uh, sort of um, little flourish that she brings to that performance really, really works for me within the context of this very peculiar character who is like kind of a, I, I can imagine, you know, the reasons that she first went there, the reasons, the ideas that she had of herself. And I think it is about the gradual disillusionment. Well, the disillusionment process has already set in for her long before the film begins. Yeah. But it's, it but is. I just a, don't yeah. care about her disillusionment in that setting. I just don't care about it. As you know, mm. as much as I think but, I'm meant to, but if there's it's so a, much other stuff going on that I feel like I care more about. But if it's a if it is an avatar for this idea that mm. like that white people can go into these places and they think that they can put their their stamp on it, and actually they get there, they realize that no matter what the other situation is, no matter what the political situation is, they do not belong there, and the the place will eventually try to expel them like like a like a toxin from its system. Um, uh, then then I think that that makes sense in that case to to to. Make make it as, as abstract as possible, the background. Well, I'm not convinced, okay. but... Neither am I. Yeah. <laughs> but I did, like, I did like Margaret Qualley. I thought it was, yeah. you know, at but least a, a fascinatingly eccentric performance. Yeah. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Another film that I know that we have slightly dif differing opinions on is the new Darjan Brothers film, Tori and Lokita. Maybe, Jonathan, you want to start us off because I know that you liked this and um, you said it, it, it was one of their best yeah, in a while. Yeah, I, I, I liked it very much. I thought they'd seriously gone off the boil for a few films and I think it started with the one is it two days one night two nights one day or yeah, two, two days, days one, one two night, days, one night yeah, which I really with, liked yeah and I that was too. the one with I did too that was the one with Marion Cotillard who I thought did not really kind of blend into the Dardenne's universe in the way that Cécile de France had in the previous one the kid with the bike which I thought was terrific and mm. she I guess it helps her. She's Belgian, but it, she really worked brilliantly in that. And she played this kind of, you know, muscular, young working class hairdresser. And she's absolutely great. Um, young Ahmed, I thought, was was really a misfire. I I think it was very well-meaning, but I didn't don't think and you're, you're, they had their grips on And you're skipping material. over the unknown girl, which is very but easy no, to do. The unknown girl was, was, was okay, and it had a really good Adele Nell performance, but it wasn't great. Uh, this one, they just felt like they... They had a grip on the material. They had a grip on the storytelling. Everything, I felt, was very economical in the way that they do... You know, that's their thing. Um, visually, stylistically, it's less kinetic than it used to be. Uh, they've changed their DOP, so they don't mm. quite have that sort of full-on, you know, rushing up behind people's shoulders style. You know, it, it's it's not as, as kind of... The camera work's not as oppressive as they sometimes can be. Um, but I thought for two young non-professionals who play... So it's about... Um, a teenage girl from Benin and her younger brother, uh, who turns out not really to be her younger brother, but they formed an absolutely tight, mutually supportive, loving sibling relationship. And they're trying to kind of 
constantly get each other out of a jam. Uh, they're immigrants, but he's got his papers. She hasn't. She's trying to get them. Meanwhile, they are completely dependent on the money they can get from um you know working for a drug dealer and of course they get deeper and deeper into trouble um the thing that you have to buy is that she lokita accepts this deal of essentially a kind of three-month contract a slave labor tending this uh warehouse this kind of fortress of um a warehouse which is a cannabis um farm yeah and I didn't believe that they would have just entrusted one person to run that place. It's completely a young girl. I, yeah. I mean, but yeah. I think I think th- I don't think don't think she runs it. There are other people there by day. It's just that she's imprisoned there yeah, by but night she's yeah. by herself it every day. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't. I I don't I don't know how you grow dope. But presumably, mm. it takes a lot more work than that. I couldn't quite buy that, but. I guess the Dardens always do their research and, you mm. know, I'll I'll entrust, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll trust them with that. Um, it just, you know, it felt, it felt real. There is a sort of melodramatic turn mm. at the end, which... There's a very undardensy gunshot. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, and yes. they've, they've, you yeah. know, they've done weird things in previous mm. films. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, I bought it. And um, I just think, you know, there's a real control there. You know, they, it's it's not in any way new. And I don't think they ever will do anything new because they have settled into making Dardenne's films. And that's what they do. So, you know, they're not going to make a kind of, you know, fantasy musical. You know, I don't think they have something completely uncharacteristic in their bottom drawer. Uh, they make Dardenne's films and, and they, they make them extremely well. And I thought this one was, uh, it may not be a one of the very best. I think possibly slightly overrated it a few days ago when I wrote the review, but I think it's going to last us, you know, one of their stronger ones. I, it's very hard not to be moved by this film. It's um, uh, The actors are, I thought they were just... Uh, you know, beautiful and very sincere, you know, this kid. And when you learn that their relationship is not one of blood, but not one of convenience either, there is something much more than desperation. They find some kind of kindred soul in each other. And the younger, the kid, the younger so-called brother, he's the mature one. He's the resourceful one. He's so resourceful. I mean, honestly, that kid, this is the reason that I... It's called Pablo Schills. Pablo Schills. And she is uh Joely Mubundu. Okay. Joely Mubundu. And so so yeah. Pablo especially for me was the was the thing that that really makes this movie that that child that character and he just the the actor himself playing that character he's so resourceful he is so just you, you would walk through traffic for this child you've you've been with him for about 5 minutes and you would walk into yeah. into traffic for him you would take a bullet for him. He's he is an, just a, an amazing uh beautiful it's a beautiful performance and and it's incredibly moving in certain parts. I was I had been before I saw this film. I actually had even thought to myself how strange it is that I hadn't done any crying at Cannes this year because I'm a very mm. easy crier at movies. I will cry at even very bad movies Not while knowing that they're bad. Got, when you do restaurant films, when I got which when, when I got my restaurant films. <laughs> no, that's when I feign a heart attack. It's, it's, it's different. <laughs> um, uh, so. Um, but then there's there's a moment in this, and it's it's not too much of a spoiler, but something very uh, traumatic happens to Lokita and Tori, her her so-called younger brother, um, who I guess is like he's supposedly about what age would you 12, say? I think? Say about twelve, I, I yeah, feeling, eleven yeah, or twelve or I something think. like that. She ends up involved in a in a very exploitative sexual situation um, with a really really horrible individual, um, and uh, Tori 
is witness to this, uh, an unwitting witness to this. Um, and there's this moment afterwards where she lies down on her bed and like Tori comes out of hiding when the, the bad man leaves and, and she lies down on her bed and she uh, is in a sort of fetal position and she says something like, I, I feel so dirty. Yeah. Um, or I, yes, I, yeah, I feel, I feel, I feel dirty. dirty. I feel dirty. Yeah. And he, the little boy, says in this absolutely just sort of completely... Matter completely fact, natural, yeah. completely matter of fact, completely down to earth way. He just says really boldly, uh, he forced you. He's the one who's dirty. Yeah. And that, I, even now, I'm getting a little bit verklempt to remembering no, that moment. That was that, a that great moment. moment. It's an incredible and, um, moment. You know, the thing, though, I will say is I wish that the rest of the film had followed, had taken its cues from that moment where something like this, which is kind of a, you know, an ideological point almost is what he's making, right? It's a moral and ideological point is made effortlessly, is made without, you know, hammering it home too hard. And, you know, as moving a film as it is, and it's not like I, you know, I was totally swept up in the story all the way to the end. But this is my problem with this film, with their recent films with a lot of their films is it's taking a story that is about a structural contemporary structural issue and it individualizes it so much it makes up the story of these two people and it's told in this extremely individual way where the miseries kind of accumulate and then it ends with some kind of you know melodramatic turn and that is you know, you. I think that you need to widen the lens a bit when you're telling stories like this. You need to kind of implicate, you know, the, the institutions a little more. No, I think that's the whole point because I think it's very, it's very much understood in their films. And I think this point comes across that they are depicting these situations as absolutely representative. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they need to tell us about the institutions or about this it is understood you know we understand that these two kids have come to belgium uh have clearly had you know a nightmarish journey and are extraordinary survivors and yet once they've arrived there's a little bit of a system in place that is supporting them but not enough and it's quite clear that they are then you know and I think we but understand absolutely you know I, they stand in a very individual way but they stand absolutely they maybe, for I how don't think people that like them are suffering they from might be representative system. but this is what I take issue with is that to drive home the point that the immigration system is flawed which is a point that is made kind of pointedly at the end of the film we have to see these poor, innocent people undergoing extraordinary suffering. And to me, that's the, you know, we become used to then viewing these problems from this lens. We have to be confronted with extraordinary suffering in order to think, if only they'd gotten their papers, you know, all this bad stuff wouldn't have happened to them. And that as that's like this humanist approach to these problems that I take an issue with fundamentally even a film like two days one night it does that a little bit but there is more like it brings in other people's stories you kind of understand how you know how solidarity is hard to negotiate in a factory setting where everyone is impoverished there is nothing like that here and so it just makes me actually feel you know Jonathan you're saying they're representative to me it makes me feel like they're being made exceptional you see, I think that, that, that for me, the best Ardennes movies, and I actually will put Two Days, One Night in there. Mm. And it's funny that, you, that you're, you're, you're pro it as, uh, as am I, because I think that that works in a very similar way to Tori and Nikita. Mm. Um, there is always in the, in the Ardennes films, I particularly respond to, I mean, 
I think there's kind of two different types of Dardenne's films. And this is one of the latter types, which I would then couple with Two Days, One Night, where there are almost genre elements. There's almost, it, it's almost a ticking clock thriller at certain points. There's uh, one particular sequence where Tori has to go and like do a certain number of things, very practical things, and you're not quite sure what, what, his, what his grand plan is. And that only reveals itself at the very end. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a very satisfying process to watch just dramatically. And so there is always, in, in, in some of these Dardenne's films, there is a real tension, I think, between the handheld social realist um, humanist um, uh, way that approach that they use and this the constructed nature of the of the, the of narrative, the narrative. Yeah. Um, and in this case I think it's for me it's not as successful as as that as that tension the way the tension works in two days one night but it's still there and the things that that irritated me about this time are those times when you can see the construction too clearly and I think that there are occasions there, there are some clangy lines in the dialogue um, and it's nothing to do with the actors themselves but even just having to sl slightly over explain things things that they wouldn't necessarily say to each other you yeah. know to, that are trying to communicate to us the audience who might not know this you know that there's a certain way that you interact with somebody if you have a shared history where you don't have to restate that shared history um, and there's a couple of times when they when that slips um, so, so that would more be my my issue with yeah. it than, than necessarily. Well, it's similar. Saying. I My issues, you know, it's partly what you're saying too in the sense that I have no doubt that, you know, immigrants, young immigrants undergo hell, right? But to me, that constructedness also comes through in the, you know, accumulative debasements, which just accumulate in a way where it makes me think, okay, how much do these people have to be debased on screen for us to receive the message? You know, and it feels like that is how the message is being delivered by this accumulation of misery. And that just, yeah, like I said, it just seems like it, it's, it's how exceptional and extraordinary can it get to make this very, to me, simple point that should not require, um, you know... I mean, I, I think it does come down to whether you regard this more as a character portrait of these two characters or if you regard it as a social issues drama that is trying right. to demonstrate these things. And I think that's and why I, it's powerful, because yeah. it is a, a, a portrait of those two I, people, I, I, because they always too. start from the individual predicament of their characters, and that's yeah. what makes their film their film so powerful. Yeah. And I don't well, think it, they're suggesting that it's exceptional at all. Right. I mean, that's, that's I think, the point about it. Specifically when you're talking about the cumulative debasement and the mm -hmm. cumulative miseries that are piled upon them, I think in this case those are there to show the cumulative uh, resourcefulness of those two characters and to make you closer and closer and like to make you more and more admire those two characters it is a it is a film that just deeply admires those two characters and in a way that I don't think that you often see the characters in that situation really investigated and really like like you know held up as as you know being able to be responsive on an individual level to these these social miseries that are visited I think upon I them. I may have a broader issue with character portraits in these milieus or about these topics mm. itself. You know, the structure of a story, I think, individualizes problems in a way that, that makes me uncomfortable. And maybe that is a broader, you know, uh, that's a broader complaint. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, unless you're going to make a Ken Loach film, which is so overtly about a theme and here is an illustrative case in this theme. Let's see how this theme applies to an out-of-work 50-year-old builder mm. in Newcastle for whatever. That, and, and they take the completely different approach. Mm. You know, they start with the characters and, you know, they make their world real. I mean, mm -hmm. their cinema is immersive and it's empathetic. And that's, for me, that's the whole point of it. Not necessarily about 
analyzing social ills, but the whole point is that it it signals those social ills anyway and makes you aware of it. But but many of their films are not about specific social ills; they're about the concrete reality of contemporary Belgium for the working class or yeah. for immigrants, etc. I just I can't separate it from the politics around immigration, where like in order to receive asylum, in order to be accepted, you have to prove in some way that you are either suffering in an extreme way or that you're a very good person. Like you have to prove that you're a good immigrant, you know? And so for me, like it's hard to separate this film from that sort of discourse. And it seems part of that cultural sort of mindset of, um, you know, it, focusing on individuals and their character and their personalities and their value as opposed to saying it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they've suffered. It doesn't matter if they're good people. The system is fucked. But actually, I mean, just to push back on that slightly, yeah. because I think in this one, one of the things that is interesting to me is that what both of them are involved in, what they both get involved in, which is the drug trade and, and you know, with certain very seedy things and they're they're on, on the the edge of legality the entire time mm -hmm. um, is is actually not anything that we would normally ascribe to the idea of the good immigrant. Um, so the fact that we like those people themselves, even though the situations that they're in w would actually in immediately classify them in most people's minds as bad immigrants. Um, you know, mm, I don't know about that because I think that it's very made very clear that they've been pushed into this corner. You know, it would be very different if they were consuming drugs. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, but again, I think this is a very productive, mm. uh, productive disagreement. And I do, uh, we don't have a lot of time. So I, and I know that, uh, you both wanted to talk about some of the Ukrainian and Russian films here. Um, so, uh, the three Ukrainian films here, there's a film by Sergei Lesnitsa, uh, his new archive documentary, which I know you wanted to talk about, Jessica. And, uh, then there is, um, a film called Butterfly Vision by, uh, Maxim Nakanechny. And uh, then there is another film, the very strange film, uh, that I couldn't quite get my head around called Pamphia, which is uh, in the Kansen. And the director's name, as I'm leafing through these notes, uh, the director's name is Dmitro Sucholtiki Sobchuk. Now, that's a very strange film and, and, and kind of an exception to... I mean, I've seen quite a lot of Ukrainian cinema recently, which emerges... A lot of it emerges directly from the Donbass conflict, um, which, you know, leads up to the horrific intensification, you know, that, that Ukraine is living with now. Um, interestingly, uh, Pamphia does not refer directly to that conflict, although there are, are references to it. It's a very strange film. It's, it's, it's like a sort of, uh, gang, gang thriller slash nightmare about a guy who comes home to his village, which is on the Romanian border, has to get into a bit of smuggling. There are all these bizarre kind of carnival costumes involved from a sort of traditional local carnival um a lot of fireworks going off there are there, there's some great scenes some extraordinary bravado you know some great you know bravura camera camera work it felt to me slightly like one of those Kusturica films where it's like you're invited into this you know crazy 
party where you don't actually know anyone and you don't quite know what the rituals are and you don't know why people are wearing carnival masks and you you sort of stick with it but you don't really feel part of it the other film butterfly vision by um maxim nakanyechny which is co-written by um Ilyan who made a brilliant documentary called uh, The Earth is Blue, and Orange, that is directly about the Donbass conflict. It's about a woman who emerges from that having been raped as a prisoner of war, and then she's dealing with the fact, you know, she's pregnant. Um, and this could have been a very simple drama, but it goes into all kinds of other areas. It deals with online propaganda. It deals with... Um, uh, racist violence. Um, it's a really interesting, complex, and you know, altogether strange film uh, because it has some very interesting kind of visual signatures going on, along with a kind of Romanian new wave style naturalism. There's also this quite strange, you know, digital surveillance uh, theme going on as well. Uh, well, I haven't seen Pamphyr, um, but I have seen Butterfly Vision, and I think it's actually w- strangely couples interestingly with um, Sergei Loznitsa's Natural History of Destruction, which is, a, a, a as Jonathan says, a, a, an archive documentary, um, but not necessarily for the reasons that we might have thought in, in initially. And I, what I find very striking about both of these films is that how, how weirdly uh not tuned to this very moment I feel they both are and Butterfly Vision is specifically I mean you can really tell that Butterfly Vision was conceived and its, its story is set in the early in the early stages of the Donbass conflict or it's certainly before the Russian invasion, before our current moment, which has become so much more polarized, so much more, and it's just the world is so much more aware of what is going on there now. So it was almost, I, I, I almost feel like the, that putting, the, putting Butterfly Vision out now is kind of setting it up for failure because um, what it actually does is really complicate the Ukrainian side of this conflict. And I'm not sure that that's a message that people want to get right now because one of the characters, one of the main characters and actually one of the, the main the, the main thrust of the, the latter part of, of the film is that her, the, this, the, the, the woman who re- returns who is a, uh, she's a drone operator, a drone expert, um, aerial reconnaissance expert, whatever it is. Um, she, her husband um, is involved in a kind of a militia, um, a, a far-right militia, um, who uh, end up, um, uh, they attack a Roma encampment and a man dies as a result of that attack. And so it's the, the, his trial. So it is actually starting to be involved in all of these things that are kind of a very, in, in, a, in a less fraught situation, they're, they're, it's a very valuable thing to be complicating the side of, of, you know, that we might actually be on the Ukrainian side, but we should actually investigate some of those, some of the, the things that are being done wrong there. But however, at, at this very moment, and even um, the director was on stage before the, the screening and, and he he ended his, his uh, very articulate and really interesting speech, which was obviously about the current, the current conflict with the glory to Ukraine um, slogan, um, which I thought was then uh, having watched the film, I thought it was that was such a strange thing to do, actually, because that very slogan is very complicated in its use very and very um, uh, problematized. In its we, use we did in a podcast film. on Ukrainian cinema uh, with a couple scholars, one of whom is Ukrainian. And uh, we had this very interesting discussion where she said that she is worried about the ways in which filmmakers, artists and even the general public in Ukraine 
that this kind these kinds of conflict put the Ukrainian people, especially progressive Ukrainians who have been trying, for instance, to speak out against Ukla- Ukrainian militarism yes. and your toxic nationalism, yeah. puts them in this corner where they feel like, but should I say this right now? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a tightrope to walk. And she was saying that is one of the tragedies of, you know, an aggressive military invasion that you you then end up sort of, big, you know, it, you end up... Nuances say, lost. Yeah, yeah. You, you're like yeah. glory to Ukraine, even yeah. though you want to critique your own no. nation yes. and, you know, you want to critique the state so that's mm. just that's a fascinating yeah, yeah and it's become an issue with um the fact that the ukrainian so so sergey loznitsa became very controversial he first of all left the european film academy because he felt that the academy had not sufficiently strongly attacked russia's invasion right. he was then kicked out of ukrainian film academy for two reasons one was because they felt that he was not a sufficiently Ukrainian filmmaker that he he identified himself as cosmopolitan mm. and that they felt he should be making films, you know, presumably in Ukraine, specifically about Ukraine, which he has done a few times in any case. But they also objected to his... Um, his um, disagreement with the idea of a complete, um, you know, um, boycott of mm. Russian cinema, including directors you know uh, uh, non anti-putin directors mm-hmm. like serebrenikov but then he said you know the way they had used the word cosmopolitan against him uh recalled the uh you know the anti-semitic uh, use of a term in the stalinist era mm-hmm. and when i read that i kind of thought oh no this is not a good time to go there mm-hmm. you know because then you inadvertently play into that kind of Putin idea of, oh, you know, we're fighting the Nazis. And, you know, Nazism, I think, and Stalinism too, probably should not be invoked at this moment. I think they're very dangerous. Well, and, and this this then leads very nicely into Natural History of Destruction, which is his archive um, uh, documentary, which is uh, all archive footage from World War II. Um, and it is uh, based, again, on the uh, W.G. Siebold, um, uh, very famous uh, book that I have not read. Um, so I can't say how it will work possibly as a as a companion piece to that to that book, I'm sure. And maybe maybe there will be a lot more riches to be gleaned from it. I was very disappointed by 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 this documentary. And um, I'm a big Loznitsa fan, especially when he's working in archive. I find he, he manages to find ways of, of uh, injecting nuance into archive work where you suddenly feel like maybe everything that has ever needed to be shot has already been shot and if you just have the research you can find it to make any like no matter how fine a point and he, he has done that so brilliantly in so many times this film however is um it, uh, and again it feels like something that is very not right for this moment because it is actually about you could almost look at it as a, a certain both sidesism going on and it is about um the uh, the uh, aerial bombing and about the fact that you know all of the civilians die um in, in all of the civilians who die in, in aerial bombing campaigns no matter how justified those governments may be at being at war they are all innocent victims so there's a lot of um sort of slightly i, I felt slightly, slightly equivalenting you know you, you go from shots of the blitz uh, of london being blitzed out to hamburg being um, absolutely destroyed and of course like these things are all true and we all do know that like unbelievable war crimes and and atrocities were committed on all sides but just at this moment this feels like a strange point to be making Um, and it feels like a a slightly luxurious point that was the weird thing I, I was like if we were not in this exact moment I think that these are again 
much like Butterfly Vision, this is an important point to be made when we're not in the thick of something like this. There is a problem, though, if yeah. you're making a film for yeah. a long time, yes, which know, he was, absolutely. and then suddenly, I mean, you know, a war happens yeah. no. three months before no, you're I'm, due I'm to show it. Do you then, it. I yeah. haven't seen it, but, you know, I actually... So I haven't seen it. So this is not really rebutting you in any mm. way. But I think there are also dangers to responding to the moment in a way that, uh, you know, responding to the moment in a way that, yeah, it, that evacuates nuance or feels like uh, you're, you're kind of serving an agenda because mm. movies last. Movies last often beyond wars. And there's, I think, Loznitsa has that long view. And um, I, I would just say also to listeners that uh, last month, um, the Ukrainian scholar I mentioned, Anastasia Osipova, did an interview with Loznitsa mm -hmm. for Film Comment, where they get into some of these mm -hmm. you know, nuances. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I don't, I'm not super qualified, I feel, mm -hmm. to speak on the specific Ukraine situation. But if anyone's curious, yeah. uh, do give it a right. read. Oh, yeah. I'll check that out. I mean, on that note, I should say that I, I, I have problems with the idea of a complete boycott on Russia. Russian cinema, including, uh, you know, anti-Putin directors. But the problem, I think, in this festival was to include particularly Tchaikovsky's wife, mm. which felt such a kind of, I don't know, a, an unnecessary indulgence. I think if they were going to have a Russian film in competition, it needed to be something which, at least indirectly, shed some light on where we are now mm. in the way that, you know, uh, Tsiakin serves Leviathan did... Mm -hmm. um, Leviathan did a few years ago. Yeah. 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 And, Loveless and, as well. and this yeah. film felt kind of a distraction and, and a, a rather sort of bloated distraction. I think mm. it was just the wrong film to be here. Mm. I wonder if any of all of uh, the context played into the selection too. Yeah, and I mean, and the and, placing and, of the film and the context obviously changes day by day. Yeah. So, so and nobody can really can really predict these things. I just thought it was very interesting in the case of those two films, Natural History of Destruction and Butterfly Vision. How I felt like, and it, it's not and you're right, it's not necessarily to do with the films themselves and what they will last like and what what yeah. we'll be thinking about them in, in twenty years time. But also, I can't divorce myself from the fact of that course. I am seeing them here. Yeah. I am seeing them in this context and in this context. And you know, film festivals are all about contextualizing. They're yeah. all about what what you know what things are presented with and alongside and what kind of moment they are s seeming to illustrate. And I thought both of those were very troublesome in that regard. Actually, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, films do travel. Uh, you know, they travel like objects, but we view them as embedded people. So, yes. so got to remind ourselves it can. I have one. Actually, I have a nice way to end this. If you want, because yes. I just I suddenly remembered that the last time I spoke with uh, Jonathan on this podcast, yeah. we had um uh, I, I I I laid down the gauntlet over Jersey Skolomowski. So I now have to uh, eat my hat. Actually, you were right, and I was wrong, because um, I really enjoyed Ayo. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. quite a, it's quite a hoot. Yeah. And it's yes. kind of beside the point, but you know the fact that he's eight. Sorry, it's kind of beside the point to say this, but the fact that he's eight. And he's making a film like this because stylistically and in terms of its ambition and vision, it's a film that could have been made by someone just coming out of film school, making their fil first film and saying, I'm going to absolutely go for broke and <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw my yeah. ideas into this absolutely, you know, without Bonkers. any fear. And one of the nice things about it is also if you ever wanted to know how Isabelle Huppert smashes crockery. And actually, someone told me, in, in fact, that in uh, you know on the shoot, she smashed a lot more crockery than that. But she imagine. does it with absolute sort of grace and insouciance. 
moments, just kind of gently dropping these plates on the floor as only she can do. I yes. will say, Jessica, I'm going to make a clip of you saying I was wrong <laughs> and you were, I'm going to listen to it every night. I'm just, I'm just going to say that that was, me too, yeah, me I'm too. sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, that's, I'm just going to pretend that that's a, that, that's a deep fake. That's a deep fake. I did not say what I just said. It's a can anomaly. The yes, very much here. so. All right. We'll end it there, guys. I uh, hope you have a f- good last couple days of can and I hope to see you, Thank have you, you back much. soon. Thanks very much. See you Bye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.